we had reports of women being stoned to death for seeking medical attention or for being raped. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. To us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. The weather was so bad, there would be nobody left. Boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances of survival were very, very slim. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain was Proud of the pain. crew, proud of what kid? I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Sally Heidenreich is a former intelligence officer of the Australian Army. Sally spoke to Sharon Maskeldare about her overseas deployments and what it means to be a veteran today. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you're listening to Life on the Line. I'm joined by Sally Heidenreich, a former intelligence officer with the Australian Army who's deployed twice to Iraq and twice to Afghanistan, where she played a key role in the fight against the Taliban. Sally, welcome to Life on the Line. Hi, Sharon. Thanks for having me. So tell us where your journey began. How come you came to be in the Australian Army? Well, I can't say that I was one of those people that always knew that they were going to join the military. I didn't have posters up on my wall and I didn't watch war movies and, and glorify it and think that I was going to one day put on a uniform myself. My, mine was a bit more of an accident. So my father was serving. He was a sniper in the Special Forces and served in Vietnam. My brother also joined the Air Force. So while I do have family members in the military, I didn't really think I was going to go down that path myself until I'd finished university. I'd gone and done my arts degree at, at Melbourne University. I'd majored in Japanese and French and drunk way too much. And, and that was all a, a great deal of fun, but really rather useless. And about a year out after that, I was sitting around scratching my head and wondering what on earth I was going to do with my life. And so I decided to join the reserves. So I trotted myself off down to recruiting and they showed me some lovely glossy brochures of people wearing their summer whites in their mess kit, having candlelit dinners and, and people with cam cream on their faces, doing the obstacle course with big smiles on their faces. And uh, they talked me into going to the Royal Military College Duntroon on the spot. And I think I was off about a month later. So that, that's really, I fell into it really. So was it the cam cream or was it the candlelit dinner? I think it was the candlelit dinners, if I'm honest. <laughs> but no, so yeah, 11 years later and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd carved out a career in the Defence Forces and I really by accident, really. And what about your dad? I mean, you say he was a sniper in Vietnam. Was, was he an inspiration to you? He was actually, uh, so I never heard many of his stories. Unfortunately, he was part of that generation that came home from Vietnam and got treated very, very, very poorly. He never really spoke about it. He used to have to leave the room if Vietnam for any reason came on the news and things like that. I've really only ever heard one or two stories. So unfortunately, I, I don't actually know that much about my father's history of service in Vietnam, which I think is a real shame. So growing up then, what was your perception of the military? I mean, what did you imagine perhaps it, it might mean to become a member of the Australian Defence Force? 
To be honest, I don't ever think I gave it that much thought. I think as I turned my mind to it, sort of after I'd, after I'd finished my studies, I thought that it might provide a great opportunity to, to challenge myself and to really step up to the plate and see what I was capable of. But to be honest, I'd, I didn't actually ever give it a great deal of thought. So I went to a private girls school in Melbourne and girls that went to that private girls school didn't join the army. So I actually never really thought about it, to be honest. So what was it like when you found yourself heading off your training at the Royal Military College Duntroon? What was going through your mind? What were your expectations? I remember feeling really, really disoriented, to be honest. Stepping out of the civilian world and stepping into that military world was very... It's just crossing a line and you don't realise it at the time and you probably don't realise it until many years down the track, just how different it is. I've got very, very distinct memories of the group of us getting on the plane and all heading off up to Canberra together. And I've got very, very distinct memories of this very polite, lovely sergeant in his polished brass and his uniform meeting us at the airport. And he was lovely and getting us onto the bus. And then as soon as we got off at RMC at the Royal Military College, they just started absolutely screaming screaming at us. And I thought, oh God, what have I gotten myself into? And yeah, I've got really, really distinct memories of that first day and just those first people that I met. And yeah, very um, disconcerting, I'd say, and discombobulating at the time. What was going through your mind then? Were you wondering if you'd made the right decision? Even with the shouting and the carrying on, did you feel that you belonged? I did. I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I remember I saw it all as a bit of a game and I decided that I was going to be good at the game and I was going to be good at marching and I was going to be good at cleaning and I was going to be good at it and I was going to, to win at the game. And that's just how I approached RMC, you know, rightly or wrongly. I approached it as like a big computer game that you had to play and that you had to get through and negotiate your way through, you know, to get from sort of one objective to the next. So I, I never felt that I was out of place. I saw it as a challenge and a game that I was going to beat, really. So perhaps for people listening who are not familiar with the military and with military culture, how would you describe the rules of that game? What was it that you had to do? Oh, a lot of, uh, a lot of ironing, <laughs> a lot of cleaning. You just had to, obviously, you had to be very punctual. You had to be fit. You had to... Yeah, like I said, just just a lot of being, you know, being highly organised, being very disciplined, very regimented, and just really having the ability to multitask and stay on top of everything is really critical. They throw so much at you, and it can be really, really disconcerting and really overwhelming if you don't stay on top of it. So I saw it as yeah, just a game of staying organised and staying on top of it all, and being as and beating the game and being as good as I could, <laughs> if that makes sense. So you were winning. You had this sense that you were winning at this game? I was playing successfully, I guess, <laughs> rather, than, rather than winning, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. It was something that I guess some people just got there and realised that it wasn't for them. So I, I distinctly remember, I think my intake had about, a, started with about 110 people and I think about 10 women. By the time we graduated of that original intake, I think there were 42 or 43 of us and I was the only woman left out of my intake. We'd taken on about 20 people from other classes that had been what they call backclassed, which is when you either you're medically injured or you fail one subject or another, and so you get backclassed into another class. So we took on a few people from classes before ours, but we, we lost quite a lot of people from, um, from my intake. And I remember we had people getting out on day two, day three, because they hadn't realised they had to get up at 6am. They hadn't realised that they had to run everywhere because they didn't like ironing, because they didn't like the way people screamed at them and all those sorts of things. But I, yeah, I saw it as a game. <laughs> I saw it as something to get through and I was going to beat the system. And this went on for 18 months at Duntroon? 
Yes, it did. Yes, it did. I've got vivid memories of doing things such as, uh, it's, it's embarrassing to say this really, but I'm, I distinctly recall I used to iron my bed <laughs> and one or two nights right towards the start. I used to sleep on the floor the night before inspection so that I wouldn't, so that my bed would be perfectly made. That really sounds a bit silly when you say it out loud, doesn't it? But yeah, I, I just, I've got yeah, really distinct memories of some really interesting and unique experiences at RMC that I'll never forget. What were the high points then? What really stands out for you looking back in terms of perhaps those moments when you were thinking, I'm nailing this, I'm really good at this? <laughs> it's not so much those moments. I think the moments that stand out for me, it's 3am in the morning and you're, you're literally sitting at the bottom of a, a pit that you've dug at Puckapunyal in the rain, dripping, every inch of you dripping with water running down into places that it shouldn't be and, and just sitting at the bottom of a pit and just having some absolutely sleep deprived, hilarious conversations with people at 3 and 4am. It's more those memories that stand out for me. So whilst I saw the mechanics of RMC itself as, as a game to be beaten, the things that stand out for me in my mind were the friendships and they're just the crazy sleep deprived hallucinatory experiences that you have on exercise. I think they're the things that stand out to me the most. And are some of those people still your friends today? Uh, yes, one or two. Well, I've, I've stayed in close contact with one or two. Yes, I have. Yeah. And it's um, it's always it's interesting to see how people's careers develop and progress. One of my closest uh, friends, who I actually joined, we went to our officer selection board together. She's now a, she's now a commanding officer, so her career is going brilliantly. So it's really nice to keep in touch with people and see how they're going. And you became an intelligence officer after Duntroon. Yes, I did. That's right. Yes. So how did that come about? I guess the process of course selection as you go through the Royal Military College and I'd, I'd received advice that with my background in languages that intelligence might be a good fit for me and so I decided to pursue that as my first core preference and it really just comes about you you put in your, your core preferences, you put down your one, two and three cores that you want to go to and you either get it or you don't I guess based off how well you do and what your attributes and your character and your personal suitability to the cause that you've selected. And that's about it, really. So for people outside of the Australian Defence Force, how would you describe what an intelligence officer does? It's varied, really. So you have your, your quintessential intelligence analysts who very much have desk-bound jobs and they, they sit and they look at reporting and they analyse it and they brief it and they recommend courses of action to key decision makers. Uh, you've got your human intelligence collectors that are out on the ground cultivating sources and meeting with sources and gathering information. There's all different streams and a very, very wide range of roles. You mentioned your language background, but what else attracted you to that role? There must have been something about being an intelligence officer which meant something to you. I am a very organised person and I'm very analytical, analytical to a fault, I think, sometimes. So I, it does appeal to me that idea of sitting down with a large amount of information from all disparate sources, trying to find the common thread in all of that information, trying to work out what it is, trying to work out what's going on, and then analysing it and then coming up with recommendations for what step we might want to take next and then briefing that to key commanders and key political decision makers. There's, there's just an aspect of that that really appeals to me personally and suits my personality, I think. So that in-depth analysis, that ability to, to truly immerse yourself in content and make sense of complexity. Was that, was that a key thing for you? Definitely. I, I enjoy problem solving. I like to take an issue and, and find a solution to it and find a path through it and find a way out of it. And that, that really, really appeals to me. And you get to, to do that on a daily basis with intelligence work. So yeah, definitely. 
Now, take us back to the time when you were preparing to deploy for the first time. You were an intelligence officer and you were preparing to go to Iraq. How did that come about? I actually, my first deployment, which was um, with the second Almathana task group to southern Iraq, actually, I actually did not deploy in a stereotypical intelligence role. There's another closely related stream called information operations. And I actually deployed firstly as the information operations officer for the second Almathana task group. And my role there was to, I guess, engage with the local population and and put articles into local newspapers and do radio segments and television commercials and bits and pieces like that, just to engage positively with the local population on the ground in Iraq, to bolster the message that we were there to reconstruct schools and roads and hospitals and that we were there to help that the conflict proper had ended and that we were now there, the coalition forces were now there to help. In terms of how that came about, uh, it was quite fortuitous, really. I just happened to have done the right course at the right time earlier that year and a position came up um, and I literally just fell on my feet into that position. I think we went to Darwin for about three and a half or four months of pre-deployment training before that trip, which in hindsight is overkill. I, I ended up being away on that trip for almost eight months and I ended up being away from home for 11 months and three weeks straight, I think, with that deployment, including pre-deployment training. The pre-deployment training was was far harder than anything that we then subsequently encountered on the ground in Iraq, which I, I think is the right way to train. Um, so train hard and, and fight easy, as they say. I distinctly remember I was really looking forward to that opportunity to, I guess, to see where the rubber hits the road. All of our instructors at that time, so this was about 2001, all of our instructors sort of had newly been to Timor and it was indirectly or directly drummed into us that to be anyone, to have any sort of real street cred, any sort of credibility as an officer or as a serving person, you needed to have deployed. So I think I just really, really wanted to get over there and to see where the rubber meets the road and to see how it all unfolded and to do my part and to actually serve my country and do what I had trained to do. That was really, really important to me. In terms of what I was actually expecting on the ground, I don't think I necessarily had a clear picture in my mind of what I was expecting, but I very, very distinctly remember feeling very disoriented and very just being struck by that whole experience of going from Australia and the West and a first world country and you know crossing the border in a C-130 and the C-130 Hercules, which is an aircraft, landing and feeling that heat. And as the ramp went down and it was the middle of the night and, and so there it wasn't very light and there was this strange dim light inside the cabin and this wave of oven-like heat that that flooded the aircraft when that ramp went down and then we got off and we got into the back of the Aslaf armoured vehicles to to drive to uh to Camp Smitty and that that drive went for about an hour an hour and a half and you're sitting in the back of this hot sweaty little metal container with no idea where you are and the strange smells and the heat and the dust and I just remember it was very very disorienting and it took me probably a few days to lose that sensation of not quite having found my feet yet I just it was one of the most disorienting experiences that I've ever been through I think that that very first deployment and very first setting foot in Iraq for the first time but after a few days then the dust did start to settle and you started to find your feet I did yes I did so that was in early November I think when I first arrived there the dust did start to settle the reality is that the day-to-day reality set in it wasn't that exciting it was just another office job but this time in a tent where the air conditioning wasn't working properly and the average temperature in the tent was 44 degrees, I think it was, with the air conditioning running and a foot of bull dust and vehicles and helicopters and planes overhead. And then yeah, the reality just really sets in that it's just another office job in a different location and with different people. 
So given those conditions, how do you adapt? Because you talk about the reality of the environment, the heat, the dust, the challenges of that. Do you ever get used to it? I don't think you ever get used to it. I think in my case, I bonded very closely with my roommate and I think everyone, you have to do that. So you have to find some close friends that you can have a laugh with, that you can literally, I've got distinct memories of at one point standing in the shower in one of these shipping containers kitted out with showers and, and the, the local Iraqi cleaners we came to discover later on didn't actually clean the female showers because only men could get jobs. So we had male cleaners. They refused to clean the female's shipping containers that they would get changed and go to the shower in. And so the shower had blocked up, hadn't been cleaned in months or years. And so the shower had blocked up. And I just distinctly remember days like standing there with sewerage coming back up out of the drain pipe around my feet and just laughing because there's nothing else that you can do. So you just have to laugh at how crappy, pardon the pun, the situation is. You have to have moments like that happen. There's no point complaining. There's nothing that you can do about it. You just have to laugh. And I made some very close friendships and I had people that I could catch up with and that I could laugh with. And I think that was key for me in terms of coping with the monotony and the the harsh conditions and everything that we would experience over in, in those parts of the world. Now, it was a very volatile situation when you were there in Iraq. Were you in danger at any time? For the most of the trip, I didn't feel as though I was too much in danger. I, if anything, I thought they, they certainly, as part of our pre-deployment training, they spoke about all of the risks. You know, we deployed with gas masks and bits and pieces and things like that, which in hindsight, I don't think was strictly necessary. There were definitely roadside bombs and a lot of things like that. I never felt specifically in danger until, so as a part of my job, I used to have to travel quite frequently down to Basra, which was a big um, British, called Basra Air Station, a big British base down in Basra, which is a port city. It's sort of, I don't know if you can visualise Iraq, but it's mostly landlocked. But then there's this very little, down in the southern tip of Iraq, in between Iran and Kuwait, there's this very narrow sliver of land in Iraq where it joins the ocean and that's where Basra is and that's where Basra Air Station was. I used to have to travel down there quite regularly, so I would go down there by helicopter and attend meetings at headquarters to make sure that the job that I was doing up in up in Almathana province was consistent with the themes and the messages that were being put out more broadly across um, the area of operations of all of the coalition forces. So I used to go down there quite regularly and one night I was, and Basra used to quite regularly get rocketed and mortared. And one evening I was down in Basra for one of those conferences. I'd been to the conference and I was back relaxing in the transit lines, which didn't have any overhead sort of ballistic protection. They were just these sort of tube-shaped, semicircular, long tents, really, with stretches down either side. And I was in my tent relaxing. I, I can distinctly remember I had my gear sort of piled up on the stretcher next to me. There were only two of us in the tent. There was myself and there was another um, another girl, a few stretches up, an African-American girl in the US Army uniform. Form. And we were just relaxing. I was reading a book and I heard the really distinctive sort of thunk, thunk, thunk noise of um, the primaries of the rounds being fired from somewhere. And that didn't really disturb me because you hear that all the time in that part of the world. I was sort of sitting there and I remember I, I had my armour next to me and I thought, oh, I should probably do the right thing. And so I, I began to lean off my stretcher and picked up my body armour to put it on and then just 
boom, there was an enormous explosion right next to us and one of the rounds had actually impacted the tent right next to us. That tent was empty, uh, so no one no one got killed, but it gave me a hell of a fright. That's definitely the most in danger that I felt and that's ironically at the time, in hindsight, this was a really silly thing to think. My reaction was, oh, good, something has happened that I can talk about, like something that kind of justifies my war service in a way, as stupid as that sounds, that was actually the first thought that went through my head, that something had happened. It was only years later that I realised that I'd had all sorts of sleeping difficulties and that it had actually affected me far more profoundly than I realised at the time. So looking back on it now, what do you think was the effect of being in that particular situation? For the rest of that trip and then subsequently for the duration of every trip that I went on after that and pretty much all periods where I was ever in any sort of high stress scenarios, I found that my ability to sleep was severely impacted and I would like, so for the rest of that trip in particular, I lay awake every night waiting for the sound of, of, of rounds to be fired. It wasn't the explosion that concerned me so much. It was the sound of them being fired because they make a very, very distinct noise, like kind of like a door being slammed really hard, but a long, long way off in the distance. I would lie awake at night waiting for that sound. I did that for the rest of that trip and I did that for every subsequent deployment and I still do it now when I'm highly stressed. So I think I think it changed the wiring somewhere in my brain in terms of my sense of safety and my sense of being able to relax and being able to feel safe. I think it, it changed something somewhere profoundly in my brain, I think, that I'm still dealing with to this day. So how did the rest of that deployment play out for you, given what you'd experienced? Oh, well, I was very tired. <laughs> I was lucky if I was getting probably two or three hours of sleep a night in sort of 20 or 30 minute bursts for the rest of that trip and sort of five or six months of two or three hours of sleep a night leaves you pretty tired. I distinctly remember when I came home from that trip just being absolutely shattered and also having, you have a real sense of purpose and a real sense of that you're doing something worthwhile when you're away or I found that I did anyway. I really enjoyed the job that I was doing and I really felt that reaching out and engaging with the local population was something worthwhile. I struggled with coming back after that first trip with the loss of purpose and the loss of a role that made a difference as well. So I think that was that was a sort of a, a secondary struggle that I faced after that trip. But then within months, you were deploying again. You went back to Iraq. Uh, that's right. I did. Yeah, I, I, I went on a number, a couple of subsequent trips um, after that one. I loved being deployed. As I say, I, I really enjoyed having a role that gave me a platform and doing something that I thought was worthwhile, particularly for the local population in these countries. I kept sticking my hand up to go back. I went to Iraq again in 2008. I got redeployed from there to uh, to Afghanistan and then I was back in Afghanistan again in, in late 2009. And uh, I loved it. I loved all of my trips. I always thought that I was doing something meaningful and worthwhile. And I really, really enjoy that feeling of making a contribution. So looking back on your deployments that you had both to Iraq and Afghanistan, what do you think was the high moment for you in terms of that personal satisfaction, in terms of feeling that you really were making a difference through your work? I'd say that there are two things. Um, so the first one was on that first trip to Iraq. It wasn't much at the time, but we put together some myself and my photographer, who was pretty much we were with an information operations team in Iraq there. We put together a series of television commercials, which were really nothing more than PowerPoint slides set to music, because that was all that we were able to do. We put together a, a series of television commercials warning young children in particular of the dangers associated with picking up unexploded ordnance and playing with unexploded bombs. 
And we saw some really, really good results from that campaign. We saw a significant drop in the number of kids, you know, with their hands and feet and arms and legs getting blown off from picking up these devices. And that was really, really, really satisfying for me to feel like I might have indirectly even somehow made it a tiny contribution towards one child keeping their hands. That was really important to me. Uh, And then I think the other thing that really sticks out in my mind would be On my final trip to Afghanistan, I was deployed with the Special Operations Task Group. My role over there was coordinating the targeting operations against the Taliban. And and that involved, you would look at all of the potential targets. So look at all of the insurgents, look at what they'd been doing, look at how they'd been treating people, look at what they were up to in terms of smuggling drugs and weapons and killing people and, and you know doing what insurgents do really. So we'd look at all of that. We'd work out who who we wanted to target and why and what effect their targeting would have both on the insurgent network itself. So for instance, if you target a key drug smuggler, you might potentially disable a whole arm of a network. And or if you take out a key commander, you potentially destabilize the whole insurgent network in a particular area for a certain period of time. So we'd consider what effects that targeting would have. And one day in particular, when I got to carry out a remote targeting operation against a key Taliban commander up in Giza, but that probably stands out for me the most. So what happened that day? Take us back to what you remember. It was 2009, a day that will be burned into my brain forever. This guy was the shadow Taliban commander in Giza, which is the only way in and out of this little part of the world is via a very, very narrow pass through the mountains. So very, very easy to control, very difficult to get into. Once you're holding that terrain, it's very easy to hang on to it, very difficult for others to get in, et cetera, et cetera. So at the time, Afghanistan had or still does have a legitimate government, but the Taliban, as it does, installs a shadow government wherever it can. Uh, And so this particular guy was the shadow Taliban commander of Gizab. And he was very traditional, hardcore, hardline Taliban. So we had reporting of farmers being beheaded and dismembered and strung up in trees if they failed to hand over their crops or their kids or or whatever. We had reports of women being stoned to death for seeking medical attention or for being raped, reports of girls being unable to go to school without being attacked and all those sorts of things. So this, this guy instituted very, very typical Taliban rule in this part of the world. We had some really negative reporting coming out about the way civilians were being treated. So we'd been watching this guy and we'd just been watching him with interest. He'd been on the radar for months, but I'd been watching him closely for, I think it was about six to eight weeks, just watching his movements, seeing what he was up to. Gizab was quite a densely populated area. The risk of conducting a remote targeting operation in that part of the world was that there was a very, very, very high risk of collateral damage of buildings, mosques, other human beings and that sort of thing. It also wasn't going to be possible for us to send ground troops in up there because they just would have been absolutely annihilated when they went in because of the nature of this particular piece of terrain. So we sat and we watched and we waited and we went about our daily business and we all did our jobs. And then one day, one of my analysts popped his head up and just said that this guy had just come up. And I just remember I just ran into the CO's office and sought permission to start a a targeting sequence, to start planning for the targeting of this guy. I got the green light from him and it was just all off from there. So we were putting together briefs for key commanders up in Kabul, explaining the pattern of life, um, explaining the degree of confidence that we had that this was the person that we were targeting, what he'd been doing to people, why it was important to target him, the effect that it would have on the insurgent network if we took him out, the effect that it would have on the lives of 
of women and children and farmers in, in Gizab if, he, if they got to get their lives back to normal without this guy's um, hardline rule. And so we just sat and we watched and we waited and you make the decision as to whether or not you hit go on this guy. And I think we only had a matter of minutes left on the targeting window when the commander in, in Kabul said to me, okay, well, you've got the go ahead, but at the end of the day, this is your decision and you make the decision as to whether or not you hit go on this guy. And I did. And then we conducted the monitoring after the fact to make sure that we'd gotten the right person and then just monitored our sources in Gizab and watched life return to normal, which was really, really nice. That's probably, of all my trips, I think that was the high point, dare I say it. And I think that was a part of the reason why I later I chose to get out probably within a year of that, because I don't think I was ever going to top that in terms of experiences. Our actions that day gave a bunch of people a sense, you know, the ability to lead their lives a little bit more normally, even if just for a brief window of time. And were you conscious at the time of what you contributed to? Or was it just a case of, okay, um, mission complete, crack on? At the time, it was just mission complete, crack on, next target. Yeah, just just move on, really. I, I don't think I didn't give it a great deal of deep thought at the time. And I've really only reflected on it sort of in the last few years in terms of feeling like that actually might have had an effect on some people's lives in terms of their ability to leave their lives. That's that's more of a recent phenomenon, I think, for me in terms of reflecting in that level of detail and not being, you know, jobs on, get in, get it done. And you mentioned the fact that it was within months of your return that you decided that perhaps it was time to move on. And although you'd had a very successful military career and done things that you felt proud of, if I can use that word, do you feel proud of what you'd achieved? I definitely do. Yeah, I definitely do. I would still, for all of the ups and downs of service, I would I would definitely encourage anyone to join and I, and I would do it again myself. So I definitely feel proud of my service and yeah. <laughs> But you did decide to move on. It was time to do something different. It was, yes. As I said, that job doing that sort of targeting against the Taliban, that was sort of, in my mind, that was the pinnacle. That was as real as it was going to get. I decided that it was time to go and do something different. And another part of your life now, of course, is you're married to Alex and you have two stepchildren. And something that stands out in my mind as having known you now for a few years, Sally, is back in 2015 when it was the centenary of Anzac and watching you and Alex hand in hand part of the march here in the city of Adelaide. And, and that was quite a moment for you, wasn't it, to be part of the march on that day? It was. It was really nice to do that march with my husband. Um, both of us had historically felt that we didn't really belong out there, as strange as that sounds. I think for both of us, the process of going through the college and the way that military history is taught and the, the reverence, I guess, with which Australia's military history is treated sort of led both of us to feel that Anzac Day is for you know the veterans of World War, the Great Wars, and neither of us really felt that we belonged out there. So it was really nice to that year to step forward and participate in the march together and acknowledge each other's service. That was really nice. So when you hear the word veteran, what does that word mean to you, given your experiences in the Australian Defence Force? To me, I think a veteran is someone who has wanted to challenge themselves, who has wanted to step up and don the uniform. It doesn't have to be overseas. It can be domestically. It can be wartime or peacetime, but who has wanted to challenge themselves and take on a role, no matter how small, to serve their country in some way. And someone who has a sense, that sense of duty, that's what a veteran is to me. Because I'm also aware that there have been times when, as a female, wearing medals, that you've been challenged about those medals. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so I think a lot of women encounter this, which is, is unfortunate. But one particular incident stands out 
in my mind. I'd gotten out of the full-time forces and I was serving as a reservist by this point and I was working as an honorary aide-de-camp to the governor here in South Australia and I was attending a function with him, which was for the conferral of um, Arctic stars, I think it was, on, on a bunch of uh, World War II veterans. And I distinctly remember I was just, so the nature of that job is you spent a lot of time in ceremonial dress. So I had ceremonial dress on and I had my medals on and part and parcel of that job was just standing sort of quietly off in one corner. And so I was just standing quietly off in one corner when I had an older gentleman come up to me and literally give my medals a sharp jab and just say, I hope you earned those. And so I kept my composure and and I I looked him square in the eye and I assured him that I had in fact earned them. And then that, he just kept saying it. He kept saying, no, 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 I hope you actually earned those. And then there was nothing that I could say to, to convince him that I had in fact earned them. And he sort of ended up sort of sauntering off, tut-tutting, you know, appearing to be outraged that a, that a woman had the audacity to wear medals on the left side of her chest. And it's incidents like that which are really, really unfortunate and really, really disheartening. And it's incidents like that which is why I don't tend to march on Anzac days. I, I don't tend to feel like I belong out there. And I, and I know from speaking to my friends and I know from some little bit of research that I conducted a few years ago to write an article about this, I know that I'm not alone in feeling like that. And also I'm, men feel like that as well, men get challenged by older veterans as to the legitimacy of their service as well, which I just think is really a really unfortunate and sad state of affairs. And it's something that I would definitely like to see corrected in the years to come in terms of the narrative around conflict, because the demographics of conflict and, and those really sharply defined gender stereotyped roles, they don't exist anymore. It's changing. And I'd really like to see the narrative and the acceptance of veterans from all walks of life change over time. So how do we achieve that in your view? You're now a member of the South Australian Veterans Advisory Council. How is your work there helping you to achieve that shift in attitude? Part of it will just be a slow process of raising awareness and raising acceptance and recognition of of the fact that a woman is just as likely nowadays to be a veteran as a man is. I think there's still a group of well, you know, very well-meaning people out there who assume that if a woman has medals on the left side of her chest, that she's accidentally put her father's medals on the wrong side of her chest. I, I just think that it's going to be a gradual, slow process of um, raising the profile of serving women and raising awareness and raising public acceptance and recognition of the fact that veterans come from all walks of life. And really, it's not only gender, it's all religions, all races. No, it doesn't, doesn't matter what the colour of your skin is, doesn't matter where you come from, a veteran can be anyone nowadays. Having listened to your story, Sally, there's no doubt in my mind that you're an inspiration to veterans everywhere and particularly to young women. So what would you like young women to take away from your story? Really just get out there and get amongst it. Don't be put off. Challenge yourself. Step up to the plate. Don't be put off by people telling me that you can't do it because you're not strong enough or you're not fast enough. Just get out there and do it, really. I've had some interesting, challenging experiences, and while they might, whilst they might have been pretty, you know, pretty hair raising at the time, I think those are the things that rounded me out as a person and gave me perspective and and shaped me into who I am today. So don't be put off by challenges. Don't be put off by adversity. Just get out there and go for it. And what perhaps would you like the public to take away from having heard your story today? I think one of the most important things that I would like people to to reflect on is that the level of support that we need to give to our contemporary veterans that are coming home from these conflicts. So it's easy to to look at the history books and and look at the situation on the ground, what we see on the news in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, and compare it to the images that we see of World War One and World War Two and assume that it's very, very different and that veterans coming home nowadays 
haven't been through those sort of great trials and tribulations and, and might not be suffering the way that our earlier veterans did, but that's not the case. The nature of warfare is fundamentally changing. The environment, the demographics of conflict is fundamentally changing and we've got potentially we have a real problem on our hands in the next in the decades to come with with contemporary veterans returning from these conflicts and not getting the support that they need. So I just I'd like people to be more aware of the importance of supporting veterans as they come home and they resume their lives as civilians and and just really giving them the support that they need to resume normal lives given the service and the sacrifices that they've made. Sally Heidenreich, thank you very much. This is Sharon Maskeldare for Life on the Line. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLPod. Give us a like or a follow to stay up to date with our most recent episodes. That was Sharon Maskeldare's first interview for Life on the Line. To find out more about Sharon, this podcast, and more, visit www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And if you enjoyed the conversation between Sharon and Sally, please help us spread the word. Jump onto Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review and post a link to this episode on your social media. It all makes a difference. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget.